I'm Nick Terzo, and you are listening to The Radical. This week's guest has earned praise as one of America's best singer-songwriters. Her new record, I'll Meet You Here, is some of her best work yet. Singer-songwriter Dar Williams joins me to discuss her writing rituals, authoring the book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, with its observations for making small towns thrive again, the Boston music scene in the 90s, and her second book on songwriting. Coming up, my conversation with Dar Williams. Hi, Dar. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. Um, You have a new record out called I'll Meet You Here. Um, And it's simply beautiful. I mean, I don't know. Your songwriting, I don't know if anyone tops your lyrics. I mean, you are incredible. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's my pleasure. I'm all about the compliments. Um, So it's your first record in a few years? Yes? Six. Well, um, you know, it was good to go for for 2020, so arguably five. Um, And uh, I'd put out a book between those those you in those years right and was, was that a book on songwriting or was that the book on the uh, kind of cities and kind of urban planning the urban planning um i'm i just finished the second draft of the songwriting book oh awesome 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 and the book you were talking about what i found in a thousand towns right correct and i definitely want to get to that i find that fascinating unto itself um this record you kind of was produced by Stuart Lerman. Yes. Yes. Awesome. I mean, were you able to do it in a studio setting or because of COVID, did you do it remotely? We did the whole thing in a studio in 2019 and then uh, in early 2020. And then I did one song with Larry Campbell up in Woodstock. Um, and actually that song was going to be mixed. Larry and Stuart were going to mix it together in early March, but um, Larry didn't feel well, <laughs> and Larry had COVID, so um, that and that was horrible. Uh, it was incredibly scary. So we did uh, a bunch of overdubs. They'd mix the song sometime around April when Larry was better, and we did overdubs where I would wear my mask and and they would adjust all of these things and do all the knobs, and then run out of the room, close the door, I take off the mask, and do the overdubs. <laughs> So it was great. I mean, but it was, it was what we could do and we did it. Wow. Incredible. And when you kind of come to an album project again, I mean, in between books and <laughs> I mean, you do workshops, you teach, I do. um, what's the catalyst for you usually? What sparks like, Hey, you know what? I've got a, are you always writing or is there a spark when it comes to making a record? It's definitely a spark. I do a lot of waiting for the spark and, and, um, I, uh, do a lot of going to places to cultivate that and find it. And I haven't recently just because we've been recording so much and I've, well, I've been working on a book about something else, a, a novel, <laughs> but, and you know what, it might never see that. I mean, I've done stuff like that. That's never seen the light of day, but I just, this is what I'm excited about. So that's what I'm doing. And, um, so, uh, but what will happen, best case scenario, I, I get my butt into a chair, um, and 
I do this thing that I think a lot of us have heard that Elizabeth Gilbert talked about, where she sits down and says to the muse or to the daemon or whatever, I'm here. Will you come find me? And, you know, I've shown up. Will you come show up and help me write this song? That that idea really helped me um, sit down and commit myself to finding the spark just by picking up my guitar and, and listening to chords and seeing what was there. Um, so I, I do that, but I, if I'm not getting the spark after an hour or so, um, I do something else. I do not believe in putting something down. I mean, nobody does, you know, that, that, Hmm. that just sounds like work. Right. And since writing is writing, I mean, on different mediums, I mean, do you ever find you set yourself your intentions to write maybe part of the book and then a song comes to you instead? You know, that's what I kept on thinking would happen with what I found in a thousand towns. I'm like, oh, this will, you know, I'll set out. And I used to do that when I was a kid, when I was younger, I would, I would work on a play because I was a playwright and then I would walk home. And as I walked home, these rhythms and words and songs came into my mind. I, I thought that would happen, you know, that, that there would be this complimentary thing. But no, generally, the thing that I'm excited about, I stay excited about. But I do like to toggle between the big projects and then sitting down and, and working on songs. But it, it doesn't do itself. I have to, I have to create the, uh, the environment for each of those things to occur. Right. And when a record is on the radar, like this one, I mean, is that, does that imply that there's touring always? I mean, I know COVID's changed the landscape but normally would there be touring yeah well i have been touring this you are record. touring right yeah. yeah so i've been touring for a month now and it's great <laughs> it's so it's like the excitement of an album release and the excitement of people just getting out in general and it's just a lot of excitement um the uh yeah the the the, the general idea i remember somebody saying sort of in around 2000, everything's going to change and people will just put out a song at a time. You write a song, you just put it out in the world. There will be nothing that compiles them, nothing that creates an album of songs. And I thought, that's too bad because it's kind of great to finish 10 songs and say, let's go into the studio and put them together and, um, and discover these sort of the themes that mark this chapter of your life, as opposed to, uh, you know, what one song would convey. And, um, and I'm glad, I think it is old fashioned, actually, to compile things into albums and toward the album. Um, and yet I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it just makes me happier to do it that way than to just kind of, you know, go song by song. Has that been more challenging, like, you know, with motherhood, like trying to do touring? I mean, do you do it in a different way now? Um, well, yeah, it's purely logistical, you know, so I used to, there are albums that I went out for 10 weeks at a time to do. Um, and, uh, and <laughs> I felt really weird when I got home and I remember going to a holiday party in my neighborhood and somebody saying, Oh, we know you as the one who does not rake. <laughs> I thought, whoops, I should have hired some people to deal with my crap. So, um, that was kind of not ideal actually to, to go out and just to, to become the kind of a different person and come back into a neighborhood that was like, who the hell are you? But I, now go out for up to two weeks at a time and then I'll come back for a week and then go back out and, um, and, uh, you know, always just do things to, to keep, keep the home fires burning. I think that's a better 
plan for me as a person, even if I didn't have kids. They're just healthier all the way around. Yeah. And, you know, there's another thing, which is that, you know, b- because of the way that the music industry broke down, um, you know, you used to... It, the the CDs that you sold were what would pay for like the tour bus and the big band and the techs and the, all of that stuff. And um, that's just not the model anymore. You'll go out with a big group, but you'll go out in a van and you'll stay at hotels and you'll stay, you know, it's just, it's actually much more sane. It's a lot less like, let's go live on a big bus for 10 weeks. So it's a little more regional, right? In scope, how you can do it now. Exactly. We go region by region and that makes it special as well. Yeah, so I always think the country guys and girls had it down, you know, with that kind of long weekend touring they used to do, mm-hmm. you know, head out on a Thursday and home by a Monday. Yeah. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just kind of sane. That's my work week. Yeah. <laughs> so, and on the record, you have these incredible songs. I mean, Little Town to me, I keep listening to it. And I just, I get so emotional with that song. I don't know. Like, I'm an upstate New York kid. So mm. maybe there's a real attachment to what you're saying around that song for me. Um, it's so beautiful. You know, I would totally agree. There's something in me that hears a lot of upstate New York in that song. Maybe because... You know, at the end of the day, nothing's that far from New York City, which is an international city and one that's known for being inclusive of all of these new strains of, you know, immigrant cultures coming in and, and how they're woven together is very important to what New York City is. There's something about these towns in New York State that have taken in different kinds of immigrant communities and woven them into their identities. And so you'll have, you know... Um, you know, you'll have a lot of old New York farms with their stuff, but then you'll have all of these different strains of, in, in particular, actually, something that influenced this song. Um, there was someone who welcomed a whole group of people from the Dominican Republic, um, I believe. <laughs> and basically, this mayor who said, we have done this for so many years. This is kind of how we identify ourselves. And now we have this new group of people, and we can't wait to see what you're going to bring to this this thing we welcome you we know who we are but we have what we call the the hometown pride but we also have a worldly welcome and that's what i love about the 21st century you know you have these places that say we know who we are so well that we're excited to bring in the new thing mm. well they'll need it too. it's just yeah. part of revitalizing absolutely them. You, need, you have to have that so um another song in here is time to be my friend um which is really nice. It leads off the record. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Gail Ann Dorsey plays on that too, who you've had a relationship with for a while playing in your playing together and all that. Yep. We play and sing together on that song. <laughs> and she is, nice. yeah, she, she's the gold standard of, of friends. I mean, she's just, um, <laughs> so, and it was really, really fun to tour with her. And there was this one thing we were coming out from um, Denver to, um, uh, from the airport to our hotel and the driver said, I cannot believe that I'm in a car with you. And I was like, Oh, well, she goes, Oh, not you. <laughs> 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 Cause 
you know, Kale like saying under pressure with David Bowie. I was like, what was I thinking? Yeah, I was I'm just going to sit back. Wow. That driver. That's something to say to someone. <laughs> you know, come on. She was totally justified. Like Gail had just come off the road with David Bowie and like Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. And, you know, it was it was lovely. She she likes to keep working. So she would go out, you know. With, with different kinds of people and she's from that kind of Woodstock area and she we had friends in common and um, <laughs> I couldn't blame the driver. That's awesome. And then on the end of this, you kind of put your aging well on here huh? at the end, um, which is a song that was released prior. And I mean, you've done a duet with Joan Baez on that song in the past, yes? A long time ago, yeah, in 1995. So I am the same age now that she was when we... When she took me under her wing, which she did. Wow. Wow. And I mean, do you actually tour together and such? She took me around Europe, and then she took me all around the United States. And it was, uh, there's still people who show up. There, I would say at least a person (laughs) per concert who shows up saying that they first heard me with Joan. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. What did you, I mean, what did you most take away from her? I mean, in that, I, I imagine you remain friends, but... In that time where you were in her sphere more regularly? Um, It was a a really unique thing that she was offering as uh, she she went out of her way because we were on a bus together, because we were together a lot and I was with her band. Um, The first day that I was on the the bus in, I don't know, France or something, uh, she she said, come to the front of the bus and the, and the band was in the back of the bus and she just gave me kind of a rundown of her history, her ups and her downs, her personal history. And, um, of course I'd read her biography, so I knew some of it, but she really kind of went deep as if to say, this is a, this is something, this is a, a career that kind of really, um, grabs your psyche and your ego and, and takes it for a ride. And, and, um, and I'm no exception. So, um, she did. And then when we were touring, she just did a lot of that, just a lot of kind of wear this kind of fabric, you know, do this with your hair. And, you know, like I've learned from hard experience, you know, what it's like to deal with a really sexist producer. I also learned that there are certain fabrics that travel well, like she would just kind of drop things into my lap and then other people would drop things into uh, into my lap of, about how she had helped to start the Center for Nonviolent Studies um, in, uh, I think, Santa Cruz, maybe outside in the Bay Area. But uh, And she never really talked about that stuff. But I would see the same Joan that was taking such care to make sure that she was uh, a supportive side-by-side sister to me on the road with the the radical Joan that had gone to Vietnam on a peacekeeping mission and had gone to the Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia on the eve of its revolution. And Vaclav Havel said that she was actually one of the reasons that it was a nonviolent revolution because her concert um, challenged the authorities and the authorities did not challenge back with violence. Um which set a precedent for a nonviolent revolution. So, you know, like I would hear all these incredible stories about what she had done as a, as a sort of a radically committed nonviolent um, peacemaker and witness. And then I would see the way she just extended the hand of, of kindness and friendship and fun and humor to me um, so that I, you know, would feel so welcome in this challenging career. Mm. Fan. Amazing. 
Yeah. What a gift. So what a gift. Yeah. What a gift. So and when you were looking at this record, I mean, did you have a? Th- I mean, since it was kind of done in around the COVID thing, is there any thematic to it? Is there ever a theme when you do these, or is there? Is it just one song and then you build on that? How do do you view a record? There's always a theme and you never know what it's going to be until you're done. Or no, I never know what it's going to be until it's done. So I, in fact, sat down with the person who was going to do the press release and she said, well, okay, so let's just go with the, the main theme of the record. And I said, there isn't one. I'm so sorry. For once, I cannot figure out what this is. And then I looked at the title that I had chosen, you know, I'll meet you here. And I thought, oh, wait, wait a minute, there is a theme. <laughs> and, <laughs> and all of the songs have that kind of, um, I'll meet you, I'll meet this as it, as it comes to me. Like, I've lived a while now, I have a certain resilience, I have a certain way of, you know, a certain perspective. And um, I think, you know, as you get older, instead of saying, well, when I grow up, I'm going to be really good at handling every single situation um, now you say, oh, I'm going to really have a hard time with a lot of stuff. And, um, and that's just going to be what it is. Like, that's not going to change, <laughs> but, but I have a good toolbox, so I'm just going to, you know, but, so I'm not going to panic about it. Um, there's a, an album that I have called promised land that has a lot of songs about people having to make really tight decisions, um, in the moment and, and their, their moral, um, identity being challenged by the decisions that they make. So there's a thing about the Milgram obedience to authority experiments. And there's just all sorts of kind of, what are you going to do when you're just that deer in the headlights? <laughs> and that's because I had a kid and everything was just a split second decision. Like, how do I get him out into and out of this car seat when he doesn't want to cooperate? Like, how much physical force do I apply to this child before I feel like it's like, bad like in the 19th century like oh my god what do i feed him when he won't eat anything and you know it was there was that kind of urgency to the songs and this is a way different ethos a way different encounter it's like a lot of really crappy stuff happens and a lot of great stuff happens and i'll just meet it as it comes based on the fact that um that's what we call reality and it is it a challenge? I mean, look, we're in our 50s, each of us now. Um, and, you know, and I kind of fight my negativity and my feeling that the world's unfair every day. And it feels like it's getting more pronounced as I get older. <laughs> I mean, is that harder as a songwriter to kind of do something that kind of isn't like a grudge match necessarily, <laughs> kind of more more positive, more, uh, you know, I don't know I, I how hear I you. can explain it. Well, it's funny because I, you know, there's a few things like I've played at colleges and I say, you know, they say that you get more conservative as you get older. I'm so much more radical than I was. It's like, whoa, this is going to take much more of a revolution than I thought, you know, and I even think the 60s, like we're in our 50s and there's like a whole sort of generation, I think, somewhat preceding us that said, if only the world just awoke to what the problems were, we would solve them. All we have to do is know what they are. We just have to announce the problem and then we will address the problem. And, um, and I think that I know that that's not true. Like we know the problems, we, we address them, we, 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 we announce them, we assess them. And then still like addressing them is, is still the challenge. It's just like, you know, enforcement of laws and things. So, um, you know, I heard this great 
podcast um, that had to um, that where they were talking about the negativity bias. And I got so pissed off because I was like, I'm going to fight my negativity bias. My life is so good. And I do get so hung up on little stuff that that's just embarrassing. Like, I'm going to I'm going to buck the trend. I'm going (laughs) to. I'm going to, I'm going to go past that. And, um, and that's really helped (laughs) that idea that I'm going to be an adversary to pessimism. I'm going to, I'm going to be an adversary to the negativity bias. And I'm going to find some goddamn good thing every minute of the day to, to point to. Um, but also like, we really don't have time to, to get freaked out. Like we just don't have time to get freaked out. We, it, there's a lot to be freaked out about, but we actually just have to, like, there's so much that you can do. I mean, I have a very simplistic, no, s- simple song <laughs> called Today and Every Day. And it says, there's no time for this smug frustration. I just, this, this way that people are like, oh, it's bad. Oh, it's worse than you thought. Whoa, it's really bad. We thought that it was bad and it's worse. That whole thing. You, okay, so I'm getting solar panels. You know, we worked it out. Some people are helping me do it. It's so cool. They, they like helping me with all the paperwork. And, you know, I grew a garden. It's not awesome. It's good. It's good. You know, I'm a traveling musician. It's good. So um, I just feel like every day I wake up and there's just all this stuff I can do. And um, I don't know. Like, to me, okay, so let's say to meet the pessimism of getting older, of, of seeing how bad it can be, we have so many more skills and we have a better sense of humor, we're wiser, we're cooler, you know, we have all those things on our side. Yeah, I think it's just the fire hose of information that, you know, we didn't have to process in our younger years, right? And now, welcome to the fire hose, guys, and here comes, here comes the dump. There is and how a, do you manage it, that, you know? <laughs> well, there is this kind of like, okay, I'll just look at the news, and then you're hit with the fire hose, you know, as opposed to... Let's just read a little bit of this and a little bit of that and then, you know, take that information. So you kind of have to do a, a big turn off if you're going to turn it off and, and it will hit you full frontal. <laughs> right. But, you know, well, I think, I, but, you know, that's ahead. their job. I mean, that's in the really creep. It's like, you know, it's like the banality of evil. It's just the facelessness of, of, of the fire hose. It's like. We're all just desperate to get this information out there, and and we're just desperate to make a job at that in this information, you know, uh, sector, sector. Uh, so, God, you know, how do I do this in the most flashy, creepy, attention-grabbing way? Oh, I'm desperate for you to pay attention to me. Like, so okay, so expect that, and then still find. I love going to Tree Hugger, which is a great site that talks a lot about cool stuff like photovoltaic paint, you know, <laughs> yes, and the tiny house movement and, you know, adaptive behaviors of otters and things like that. Like I, I, there's still a lot of good information to look for. Um, I, I'm not, there's just too much good for us to be so freaked out about the bad. Like there's just so much, too much good stuff to address it. Right. Well, I was just curious, especially this, you've been a well-known, uh, you know, been very self-aware about climate and its impact on us, yeah. and, you know, with this week and the cop thing and, you know, in, in, uh, where was it? Scotland this week? Where, where did they do that? I 
was like, I mean, I, you know, when <laughs> they said today on the news that there was, <laughs> they're like, yeah, this methane and, and forestation thing, that's, that could be really great. Not enough. I'm like, what did you expect? <laughs> what did you expect? I mean, these are, these are countries. They're like little game pieces on a, on a big board. And they're all jockeying for themselves. You know, they're just working with like a crappy set of rules and, and allegiances that don't really work. And what did they, what did we think they were going to do? besides a lot of puffed up posturing. I mean, what can they do considering, you know, the elections that accompanied them and everyone going, oh, that's it, 2022, we're going to have a bunch of, you know, climate deniers in office, get ready for that. So, you know, we do the best we can on that huge level. And of course, when that happens, it's fantastic. Um, but we actually, in our smaller communities, in our families and stuff, I mean, I just there's just an enormous amount of consumption that we could be addressing. I think we could be a little more homesteady in our ethos um, in, in general. And the pandemic was great for that. I was like, what can I do that's on the land itself? What can I do with a stick? What can I fix and mend? You know, do I need that? Do I really need that? And I started to get into this whole like, why do we need all that money? Like, why do we think that having a lot of money and spending it is so cool? Like, isn't that a little embarrassing? Mm. Interesting. That's interesting. So let me, <laughs> well, you know, I well, was, I think we mean, all learned that though. We did. We all learned, you know, I think I've been on a plane in 22 months. Yeah, I, yeah. I would be on a plane twice a month, every month. So, I mean, that's f whatever that is, 44 flights that I didn't add carbon or whatever. I, I know. The world, and then they're so. like, it's down by 8%. I was like, 8%? Like, what? I was like, I, I, I cut the sleeves off of my dresses and like didn't need to buy a whole new wardrobe. Like, what are you talking about? 8%. <laughs> but, you know, it's, this is what I, I was talking to my son about. I said, this is the basic thing. The, 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 the uh, resources upon which we built wealth, our dreams, beauty, and an incredible quality of life um, are not sustainable. We just, we have to, if we want to have all of those dreams, we want to do all and have that great quality of life, and we want to have all that great stuff, we just can't build it on the backs of of, of the, the dinosaurs anymore. You know, we can't do it with coal and um, gas or even natural gas um, anymore. We, we, and we can't do it on sort of this endless consumption thing. Besides balancing carbon, we also have pollution. We also want to have robust biodiversity. Like those are the three things. Like once we get that done, then we can, then we're fine, you know? So like, why can't we just get more interested in bird watching <laughs> than like jet skiing? <laughs> like, can't, I mean, just, just because we can't do that anymore. We can't do this on the backs of, of those resources anymore. As somebody said, we're, we're using up the, um, the, the life support systems. We're using the life support systems of the planet for all of this, and we can't exhaust those. It's just a fact. It's nothing personal. So how can we have the best, coolest, most beautiful, poetic lives that we can have with less consumption, material consumption, or with new kinds of energy? That's all. Um, and that seems 
like an exciting, like, I like that. And I, and I hope that I don't come across as a person who's like, and I do it better than you do, because then people are going to be like, well, guess what? I'm going to go shopping. You can F yourself, you know? <laughs> right. So this kind of leads me into the book, right? What I found in a thousand towns, one just on, you know, how healing this might be for the, for the future, even in this country with all the divisiveness Two, you know, what we were just saying about how do you keep a positive attitude, all the negativity, you know, this plays into that. And then just, you know, how do small towns thrive versus, you know, kind of barely survive? Um, talk to me a little bit about this book and what you were most surprised by learning, maybe? Everything reinforced itself, including the fact that the towns that had this thing called positive proximity did well in the pandemic because they had more of the community conversation happening. So um, it's uh, so basically I identified this thing that I call positive proximity, which is a state of being where living side by side with one another is seen as beneficial. And, uh, you know, along with not liking anybody, like you can be a complete misanthropist and still have positive proximity because you're like, I don't like people. So I'm going to be the person who goes in and hand renovates like a beautiful historic building by myself. <laughs> and that person who's really social can bring me the coffee and go away. You know, so it's like we all have our, you know, place in the choir. Um, I looked at positive, pro I pulled out positive proximity and I said, what grows it? What maintains it? What, you know, creates um, a durable positive proximity? And, um, and I came up with these categories, one being certain kinds of spaces, like, I, for instance, a two-room cafe. Like if you have a, a cafe and you're in a kind of an ailing town, what about like clearing out another room with low rent <laughs> that can be where the depressed kid writes her poetry and a couple of people can have a meeting? Like that second room is where a lot of new community energy can really thrive. Um, then I also found um, that identity building projects around food um, and um, uh, history and, you know, whatever is unique and interesting to your region, culture um, can be a real builder of positive proximity. And then there is this thing that I call translation, which is like, what kind of partnerships can you build? What kind of media do you have and stuff like that? Anyway, so that's that's the book. And um, so when you ask about surprises, I think that some things came down to really simple little catchphrases. <laughs> One was the opposite of division is not unity, it's collaboration. So when we get into that kind of semi-fascist, like, why aren't we unified? I'm like, who wants to be unified as like lockstep, goose step, whatever that, you know, um, and uh, that's never, and that's never going to happen. It's a completely elusive um, goal. Collaboration is something we can be excited about. Um, so I, so that was one thing that I came to, um, I think that we actually do ourselves a disservice when we're trying to be unified. But when we look at our ability to collaborate, we re recognize that our towns and cities do a lot of things right. So that was one thing I saw people doing and recognizing is that they could collaborate in really interesting, creative ways. Um, the other thing I have realized is that we keep on talking about the political will to do certain things. And um, and when you talk about the fire hose of information or where we're at in our 50s, kind of looking at the world from the perspective that we've gained, um, the social will needs to be there before the political will. So the idea that calling in an expert to 
help you with your town or city has to it has to be preceded by the idea that calling in an expert is worth happening, that that neighbors and downtowns and some structure to your community is important. And in order to believe that, you have to have had some experience of trust, benefit, uniqueness, resiliency within your community where you're like, I like it here. I don't want to be anywhere. I want to be here. So um, positive proximity is, I think, a really good way to identify ways that we can strengthen social will to have more faith in the things that require political will. Um, and therefore, it's politically important to build social will. It's politically important to build positive proximity. Wow. It's fascinating. It's so fascinating. I mean... <laughs> Does that make sense? Is it fascinating? Well, like, what did she just... No, no, no. It, it, it's... Listen, in some ways, it's like you just perfectly explained it so it's simple it's, it's not that it's, it's not asking that much right right you know good that's that if that's the takeaway i'm really happy it's not that hard you know just you know like one of the things i identify is waterways if you have a stream or a you know ocean front or anything um that you can a lot of times there is a, a factory on there because they need the cooling water so you're kind of competing with a, an industrial past but um like uh Detroit had two factories. They got rid of them. They were defunct, basically. So they got rid of them. They built this river walk, and they and they just brought all these things into that river walk that were really smart and that have been really defining and helpful to Detroit. Um, I say to people, like, if there's some creek, you know, you can clear away some of the debris and the old tires and the condoms and the junk weeds and plant a little grass and have a little poetry reading. Just trust me. Like, that's the other thing. Like the whole book is like one thing leads to another. That's really maybe the whole book right there. Like one thing leads to another. So as you say, it's simple because you have the poetry reading and then people start to talk to each other. And suddenly like all of this new stuff that, that kind of scares us like green roofs, you know, it suddenly becomes like, oh, no, that's why don't we just do that on the elementary school? I mean, if it fails, what, you know, big deal. They'll just drip on their heads. <laughs> you know, and we'll turn it into a big, you know, learning experience. <laughs> so, you know, I just say to people, like, find the space, clear a little space, make a little event, try a little thing. What are you interested? That's another thing that's important. Build around your self-interest. That's a great thing I learned from mm. someone in Middletown, Connecticut. She said, don't try to organize in other people's interest. Do what's important to you mm. that's interesting and beneficial to you. That's awesome. Yeah. This makes it all so accessible, though. This is so great. Oh, well, thank you. That was like the whole reason I did the book. Because I was like, ugh, these books that are like, look at these cool people. You could never be that person. Look, look at the fantastic, brilliant thing they did. Like, go admire them and feel useless. I want to do the book that was like, you know, it doesn't take that, you know, Fall River has Lizzie Borden, you know, who killed her parents in a nursery rhyme. And like, they make so much hay out of that. And that's a pretty gross story, you know, but they're like, hey, Lizzie Borden, come on by, take a picture, take a <laughs> selfie. <laughs> and they're cooking like Fall River's doing great. So, well, back to music. I, I, I could go on with you for another three hours on the topic we were just on, but back to music. I mean, it's, it's such a different time from when you started, um, you know, and you do these retreats for songwriters. I mean, I take it, you must do some mentorship as Joan Baez did to you, um, for younger writers. I try. 
what advice do you have for like a young songwriter artist today where I kind of feel like music's become ubiquitous, um, devalued, beyond devalued? Uh, what is your advice to a young artist? Um, it's, it's a tough, you know, this is uh, a couple of things. One, there's this thing that I call the numbers. And the numbers are, um, you know, your height, your weight, your billboard status, people in your audience, likes, you know, streams, all that stuff. Um, you can, it's, we have this horrible invitation in capitalism to kind of become so obsessed with the numbers that we value ourselves according to all of that. And, um, and I say, basically, do your best to stay away from the numbers, except for one, which is money. And it's great because all of these college kids are like, oh, money, but if I do what I love, the money will come. I'm like, that's such a lie. That's a mean lie. You know, if your parent is a podiatrist and you write songs about feet, you might have, they might be the best crafted songs in the world. And you're going to have like a hundred people who are like, oh my God, the Bunyan song, you know, and, but that doesn't mean that you're a bad artist or that you're not passionate. You're not, you know, connected to what you do. It's just, you're not going to make a living at that. So I just say like, figure out, like, <laughs> I can get really like specific, like figure out what you have to pay every month. There is a way to know that. Figure out what you're probably going to spend every month. And then the last third is what's left over, you know, and if you can live on saltines from the, the <laughs> like the side of the Wendy's, you know, <laughs> as my friend used to say, make yourself a relish sandwich, two saltines and relish. It's free. You know, if you can do that, then then go ahead, be an artist. But if you and 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 you're not making a lot of money. OK, there you go. But if you say, look, I need to make what I call to my friends muffins. You know, if you need 20 muffins and your art makes 10 muffins, don't sit in a chair and say, gosh, if only I was a good artist, I could make 20 muffins. You know, I'm, I'm starving because I'm, I'm not passionate enough. No, just go get some crappy job where you can make your other 10 muffins and, and give stop giving yourself such a tough time. So, so, you know, Look at what also I think that helps with sort of that endless greed that we have, you know, like it's never enough. No, actually, I discovered when I was 25 that if I had $21,000 a year, I could have sushi and therapy and still be okay. I'd also have like a thousand housemates, but you know, I'm social. So, you know, so that's one thing. Um, the other was uh, is um, go to the place where there's a scene. Uh, I really recommend because no matter what happens, then you'll be part of that hearth, that warmth, and that excitement around creativity and kindred spirits to that excitement that you have, and it will inspire you. And it will also push you and and mess you up. And you'll probably end up sleeping with a bunch of those people. And you know, just be careful. So uh, and you'll have terrible crushes, and you'll write about them and be like, does the person know that I'm writing about them? You know, you'll have all the intrigue. Um, and shared resources and tips and all of those things and venues that you create together or that you play together at and stuff like that. Scenes are great. They're, 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 they can be really petty, but that's part of the fun. <laughs> so that's what I did. I was in Boston and it was a scene and it was so amazing. I just still have such a strong excitement and love for what that was. Yeah, Brian Eno calls it senius. 
um, <laughs> where all this creativity can come together in one spot like that yeah. and kind of build on each other. Yeah. Um, so that's his term for it. Senius. Senius. So, that's fantastic. That might I, be your next book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, well, it's, it's in the book, you know, that I already did. Cause I, cause Senius. I'm a big ad, like, I'm like, how to do an open mic. Okay. The host is a big one. There's a big part of like a decent sound system. Very important. Don't kill your ears. But also the host who knows how to like bring in, there was a guy who used to play, you know, just out of tune out of tune guitar out of tune singing no relationship between the two he just belted it out there enormous passion enormously moving and effective and the the guy the mc of the open mic was like that was astounding that was amazing and we we're like thank you you know because an mc who's like ugh, you know let's have a real musician up here no you want a person who's just like all that community energy you know, wow, you just wrote, you know, a beautiful poem about your female anatomy. Okay, we're going to roll with that. Awesome. <laughs> you, you know, so so I do write. <laughs> I've already written about how great it is, what you need for the senior's energy to grow. Fantastic. That's fa Thank you for that advice. That's so funny. Well, I was, as an A&R guy, I was early in the Seattle thing. So, you know, I got to watch that whole community and it was like, this will never be duplicated. It's remarkable. I mean, it may be, but not in its... No, 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 no. It was... It's a moment in time somewhat. Abs so. and, and it had its own... the per It had its own personality in terms of how, you know, like the Riot Girl thing coming up sort of parallel to, in response to, you know, feeding off of, but also responding to the, the you know, what Nirvana was doing. And, you know, the Riot Girl thing is a fantastic chapter in history that I hope more and more people look at because they had to push away a lot of publicity and therefore we don't know as much as we could. I mean, thank God for um, uh, the punk punk singer, I think it's the one about Kathleen Hanna. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great documentary. Um, but so yeah, Seattle. Oh my gosh. What a time to have been there. I'm glad you're still with us. I think there was a lot of, it was a, oh, yeah, two way too many yeah. friends gone. Yeah. I so know. that's the other side of the, Point. The excitement, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I could do this forever. Me too. You've Thanks, been Nick. so lovely. The new records, I'll meet you here. It is so beautiful and lyrically. You, I'm telling you, you are just in the Hall of Fame. There's no way around it. You're so, so. kind. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for being a cool A&R guy back in the day, by the way. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> there are, you know, we always had such a bad reputation. I tried. So. <laughs> I know there are a lot of jokes. But you know, a good one is a great one. A good one is a great one. So thank you for being a fan. You uh, know, well, thank you thing. very much. And best of luck with this record. And I can't wait to see you live. It oh. should be amazing. <laughs> I'll see you then. Thanks so much. All right. Okay. Stay healthy. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dar. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpod.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.